to be able to or to have the pressure of coming up with a sermon week after week, week after week, week after week. I don't know how many of you consider that. It's not an easy task. But it does require reading your Bible, studying God's Word, and asking Him to pour into my finite mind that which He would have me to communicate. And sometimes as a recipe that still needs to be improved, God says to me, remember the first time you preached that sermon? <sighs> you missed a whole lot. Let's go back and look at it. And only God has the ability to take us back to the starting line and say, this is what you missed. So the Lord took me back and as a dear lady who was in one of our churches in California, named Sister Hughes, she's now resting in Jesus. She told me one Sabbath, she said, Pastor, don't, don't preach that sermon to me until you preach it seven times. And I said, what do you mean? She said, like a cook, that's when the recipe is good. And I never forgot that. So out of all the 1,400 plus sermons that I have in my library, Sometimes God takes me back, and what I've learned in, in the trek of going back, I realized how much God has allowed me to grow. If you spend time with the Lord the way he intends for you to do that, he'll reveal to himself and show you that you have grown. If you're following the Lord, you cannot help but to grow. So today, I want to encourage you that... In this growth, there's never a time in your walk as Christians that the Lord doesn't give you a dream. And today, we're going to see that God still believes in the dream that he has for every one of us. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to read the scripture. And then I'm going to ask the Lord to do what only he can do. Loving Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege of and the responsibility of being chosen as a vessel through which the word of God will be communicated. I pray this morning that you'll speak to my heart and still connect dots where they have been omitted or left out. Or overlooked. May you fuse and infuse and reignite in the lives of the hearers, reminding them that time does not cancel the dream that you have for each one of us. Speak to us now, we ask, that we may rediscover what we may have forgotten, and that your perfect will may be accomplished. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We begin in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. When you take the time to study God's word, excuse me, to study God's word, you'll find that there are dreams all over the Bible. They're all over the place. God believes in dreams. Some of you remember the dream that Jacob had, and he saw the ladder ascending and descending. 
You may remember the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar of the unfolding of the kingdoms of the world and how God visited Daniel in the night visions, which is a dream, and reminded him of what he had previously given to Nebuchadnezzar. And their dreams, you may remember the dream that uh, Joseph had when he was in prison and he told it to the candle maker and the butcher and they forgot him and left him to lament in that Egyptian jail. But still today, God gives dreams and we're going to consider one of them through this message, how God works still through things that we might refer to as impossible dreams. Matthew 1, verse 20, and the Bible tells us, or reveals to us, speaking about Joseph, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that in the last sermon I did called Divine Appointments, how God had set an appointment through the life of Mary that was in harmony with the timetable of heaven when the fullness of time had come. Today, we're going to consider the latter part of that as we include the wise men and the shepherds in God guiding them to fulfill a divine purpose. But let me begin with a story that I believe will give some foundational strength. When he was released from jail after being imprisoned for 27 years, during that 27-year period, as he was interviewed, by one reporter or another, Nelson Mandela said during his time of unjust imprisonment, he says, I'm dreaming of the day that I'm going to be set free. And when he was set free, these were the words that were coined in his very first speech after being set free from the South African jail. He said, it always seems impossible until it is done. He waited 27 years for his dream of freedom to become a reality. And he said, it always seems impossible until it is done. And some of you may be in that same predicament. For many decades, you have dreamed about something that can be different in your life. And somewhere along the way, in the imprisonment of your moment, you may think it impossible. But if you hold on to what God has placed within you, the dream and the vision to be something better, to be something stronger, to do more than you've done thus far, you might be able to also say, as Nelson Mandela did, it always seems impossible until it is done. Nelson Mandela was a South African anti-apartheid revolutionary. He was also a political leader and a philanthropist who served as president in South Africa between 1994 and 1992. 1999. He was the country's first black head of state and the first elected in a fully representative democratic election. Up until that point, leaders were, import, leaders were appointed 
And in South Africa at that time, the blacks had very little say in who became their leader. Another writer said, Dreams are always big because God intends for us to grow into them. A very well-known inventor said, if your dreams don't cause you to tremble, they are too small. And so people dream and they say, well, why did God bring to me this big dream? Who am I? And I cannot help but to insert in this moment, in his absence, we're standing in a building that started somewhere in the dream of a man named Danny. Father, where are we? And God said, ah, let's work on that dream. And the world is better for this, that God ignited in his humble heart, not wealthy, not qualified by understanding how it's going to happen, but when God gives a dream, God makes himself responsible for its fulfillment. Another man that you might identify in just a moment, after creating the fictitious character in 1928 named Mickey Mouse, Walt Disney said, if you can dream it, you can do it. And today, millions of children through that almost 100-year period have looked to Mickey Mouse, who is just a fictitious mouse that just inspires them for whatever reason, but it all began in the mind of a man who first dreamed it and then made it happen. Going down the line, you may remember August 28, 1963, a date that for many is permanently etched in the minds of the baby boomer generation. It was in the shadows of the Lincoln Memorial that Dr. Martin Luther King echoed the sentiments of unity and civil rights through a speech known as, I have a dream. When you look at that dream, it wasn't born on the steps of the Washington of the Lincoln Memorial. It was born in a church as he was sitting next to a lady named Mahalia Jackson. And he had written his sermon, but he just couldn't get it going. And over the solitude and din of the distracted congregation, wondering why is he misfiring today, Mahalia Jackson said, Martin, tell him about the dream. And we look back today as one of the most famous speeches ever given. It ignited a passion in the minds of people to, to begin to dream beyond the moments. The mall at Washington. When we think about how it happened, the mall at Washington was inundated by people of all classes and all socioeconomic standings. White and black, Jew and Gentile, Muslim and Catholic. And what was amazing about this dream that they had heard about that was first thundered from the pulpit in a church in the South. The speech was not advertised. No money was spent on billboards. No money was put for television advertisement. It wasn't mentioned in the newspapers. There was no advertisement of any kind. And yet when the day came, you remember the picture. You've been around long enough. You remember that day when he stepped out and said, I have a dream. And something in the heart of men began to click. It was like God had turned the pilot light on and they could hear the clicking on the stove of their future. 
until an ignition switch kicked in and everybody began to embrace those four words, I have a dream. Commentators said that the I have a dream speech created a silent connection between Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the world. His dream, they say, resonated to humanity's greatest longing, the desire to be free. And we see today so many advancements made for the underprivileged. He didn't favor just one race. He said, I have a dream that one day the white man and the black man and the Jew and the Gentile and the Protestant and the Catholic, he dreamed for all humanity. that One day we would be judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. And today, people still remember that dream. My wife and I went down to visit that, that famous church there down in Georgia, I believe it was, in Atlanta. And it was one of our days off. We were on our way between Weimar and I forget the next location, another camp meeting, but we just decided to go through Ebenezer Baptist Church. We decided to pause there. It was like a Tuesday, an off day of the week. And we ascended the steps and we walked into the Ebenezer Baptist Church and the the, the sanctuary was completely empty. And we knew that they repeated one sermon or another of Martin Luther King's. We missed the last one, so there was a sign that says, the next message begins in three minutes. And so we decided to walk down the aisle, make our way to the center of that empty Ebenezer Baptist Church. And when they began to play that next sermon, I sat there in tears when I heard him say, I have a dream. And I said, God intended for me and you to hear that today. No one else. And we got up and walked out of there fired up, ignited. And I went into the bookshelf, to the, to the bookstore and, and bought one of his books called The Power, the Power of Words. At a time when words were being so misused in the public and people said if they say it, they don't really mean it. And Martin Luther King says they could not say it if they didn't mean it. For the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The power of words. And I went back and looked at some sermons and I said, Lord, have mercy. I don't believe I preach that. It has no content. And it opened my mind to begin to dream deeper and look at things that I had missed in the past. And I understood what he meant by the power of words. Another Brazilian poet by the name of Paulo Coelho, he said, there is only one thing that makes a dream impossible to achieve, and that is the fear of the future. I've often said people don't fail because they don't have resources or because they don't have ability. They often fail because they fear things that are greater than themselves. Not because God gives you a dream that's impossible to accomplish. But if you have a dream, you know that it takes work to make a dream a reality. People often fail because they fear the work that it takes to cause a dream to come to pass. Another writer said, if you fear the future more than you fear the past, you will never dream. 
Martin Luther King Jr. feared the repetition of the past more than he feared what will happen to him in the future. And that's why he said, I may not get there with you, with you but I've been to the mountaintop. Unless you have a mountaintop experience in your life with just you and God alone, that's why I chose that picture. Unless God has taken you to heights, you can't invite anybody to join you where God has never taken you. And so I speak as a man who's getting older, getting gray, getting wiser. God is still chiseling some of my rough edges away. But I want to share with you today that dreams are a three-stage process. Sometimes you hear about a dream or God brings a dream to you and you say that dream is impossible and then you dismiss it. And God brings it again and then to you that dream seems improbable because you now consider it. But finally that dream seems inevitable because you decide to pursue it. And I'm saying to you as we are winding down, I don't like to date things, but as this year is winding down, I won't give a date to it. But as this year is winding down, I want to challenge some of you Adventist Christians, some of you watching that may not even be Christian at all, or maybe members of a different denomination. I want to challenge you to begin to tap into the God who knows no failure, to the God who believes that if I bring you to tomorrow, I don't give you another day for it to become a 24-hour period of waste, but that you wake up in the morning with a passion that if you had only this last day, how would that last day be recorded in the annals of, of eternity? What would God say? He lived it with his best. She held on to that day. And although that day, like a, a ferocious bull, tossed and turned her, she refused to let go. And I'm saying to you today, God still believes in our dreams. Because when God places a dream in your heart, he makes himself responsible for the accomplishment of that dream. God doesn't give us a dream and say, do it. But God makes himself responsible for the fulfillment of that dream. But I now begin to dive into the story, the core of the story, because I, I, I'm mindful of the fact that the I have a dream speech was not the only dream that had freedom as the focus of its core desire. As you read the Bible story about the birth of Jesus, the wise men and the shepherds, you discover that it was not long before that the breaking news to the shepherds, it was not longer after they received that vision that the breaking news that came to the shepherds became the inspiration of the wise men. Because the angel that appeared to the shepherd and then the angels that sang to them glory to God on the highest. As I was reading and studying, I came to find out that the reason why the wise men began a 400-mile journey is because the, bright, the stars of the angels was so bright that appeared to the shepherds that they saw the light from 400 miles away. And these men that didn't have access to the scriptures, these men that were not Jew by birth or had access to all the writings of the prophets, they began to inquire what that light meant. So walk with me through the ignition of a light in the lives of the shepherds that lit a candle in the lives of the wise men. 
There are three reasons why we should always investigate what God brings to us. And this is what was the cadence in the unfolding of the appearance and the revelation of Jesus. There were three things that drove the picture. One was the prophetic timetable of the shepherd's report. You see, if you had been preaching as a people for more than 2,000 years that Jesus would come, you should at least believe your own prophets. I was at um, the music show, the, the, the technology show down in, um, in Las Vegas. And I was standing in line to check out as I purchased something. If you don't like electronics, don't go to Las Vegas. Moses knows what I'm talking about. It's just nothing but blocks and blocks and arena after arena. And I, and I walked up to the counter and there was a Jewish gentleman, long beard he had on his jacket, B&H photo. And I'm so familiar with B&H, I've purchased so many things from them. And I saw his name. His name was Daniel. I said, hi, Daniel. He said, hi, what can I do for you? I said, we have a lot in common. I keep the Sabbath. He said, are you Jew? I said, no. And I don't eat unclean foods. And you're not a Jew? No. And I said, it's amazing that you have the name Daniel, because do you know the prophet Daniel? He said, oh, I know the prophet Daniel very well. And I dove a little deeper because he was so kind. His face was so welcoming. He, so he leaned forward. He said, what do you, why do you speak about the prophet Daniel? I said, because the prophet Daniel foretold the coming of the Messiah. Amen. Have you read it before? In Daniel 9, he said, I don't remember that. And I came to find out that among the Jewish community, they are forbidden to read the prophecy of Daniel 9 that foretells the coming of the Messiah. They are forbidden to read it. And I said, go back and read that. He said, I might do that. Now, I don't know if he knew about the prohibition, but I thought to myself, if I could just allow him to be ignited, to think that the truth of the Messiah is something that he may have missed. I don't know what happened to Daniel, but I told Daniel to go read Daniel. And I hope that God would take it from there. If you have, as a nation been preaching the coming of Jesus for more than 2,000 years, you should at least believe your prophet. If you didn't believe the prophet Daniel, then you could believe the prophet Isaiah. Because Isaiah made it very clear. Secondly, the location. The location that the shepherds had been given. We find in the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 11, these words. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the prophets know they foretold where Jesus would be born. The shepherds were told where they would find Jesus. But then if you go further than that, not only the prophetic timetable and the location, but the inspiration of the report. And this is the part that really grabbed my heart as I studied this story. How could those who did not have the message share the message unless a divine source revealed it 
to them. Follow me. When you go to Luke chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, you find out that these were, these were basic shepherds. They were watching over their flock, either, by, either they were goat or sheep. When my wife and I, along with a group of other people, went to the Holy Land, it was amazing. We saw shepherds all over the place. Sometimes they're driving down the highway, and then we see a young man and all these sheep or all these goat, and all he has is just a basic crooked stick, and he's going like this, just tapping them and tapping them, and I'm thinking to myself, they're along the side of the highway. His job is to keep these sheep and goat from running into the highway. And then we went down to Africa, and we saw other shepherds, and they had cattle. They were guiding cattle, and I'm thinking to myself, look at the size of those beasts, and that little shepherd with that small staff is able to guide all those beasts. What came to my mind is as I read Luke 2, verse 17 and 18, because these were not men that were prophetic in their understanding. They were not Jewish leaders. They were just shepherds in the field. And they could not proclaim a message unless divinity had revealed to them a message, which I'm going to say this before I read the text. Sometimes God passes by the very well-learned to reach the humble. So, because people don't understand a message, doesn't mean that God won't take the initiative to reveal to them the message that we sometimes take for granted. These men were just shepherds in the field. And notice what the Bible said, as the Lord visited them. Now when they, that is the shepherds, had seen him, the message God revealed to them, notice what they did. They made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. As a result of revealing what God told them, verse 18, and all those who heard it, what's the next word? Marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Now, why is that passage so significant? The Jewish leaders were not proclaiming the message of the coming Savior. So the Lord says, if you don't want to proclaim it, I'll find somebody who will proclaim it. And he passed by the well-learned to reach those who were obedient and had a heart to guide sheep. And he said, here's a message. You're already faithful in guiding the sheep. Maybe you could help guide my sheep. The multitudes marveled not because they were educated, but God passed by the well-informed to reach those who were humble at heart. But it goes even deeper than that. You see, when you study this story, you begin to see that this knowledge was first revealed to the Jewish leaders. So when the story was shared by the shepherds and the people marveled, if the Jewish leaders had said, yes, the story is true, it would have been a rebuke to them because they could not ignore the fact that God told them first and they chose not to share it. So to say that this message is true would have done two things. It would have made them look bad because they were educated but unwilling. The shepherds were uneducated, but they were willing. So the Jewish leaders rejected the report again because by accepting what the shepherds had said would have revealed their unfaithfulness to what God had revealed to them first. 
how could God pass us by and communicate to ignorant shepherds was the question that they battle with. And that is why Isaiah 53 says what it does. Here's what the Bible reveals. Isaiah 53 verse 1, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the reason for that passage. Who is going to believe our report? That's about the shepherds. Who is going to believe it? You know who believed it? Those whose hearts were always humbled. And here's my first point today. Good news is good news no matter who delivers it. That's why I don't, I don't hog the pulpit. I don't mind who preaches here. Because God may give somebody something that I don't have. Or may give me something that somebody else does not receive. It's God's message and God can give it to whomever he chooses. The story gets deeper. Forty days after Christ's birth, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to dedicate him according to the Jewish law. When you begin to study the dedication service, you find out a number of things. One, child dedication was a common day-to-day routine at the temple. Every day people brought children to be dedicated. The priest would take the children in his arm, then he would dedicate them, and then after prayer he would hand them back to the parents, and then he would take them to the, to the registrar who would register the name of the child. Now think about this for a moment. So in the line of those who are taking their children to be registered is Joseph and Mary, and they have the king of the universe in their hands. That blew me away. When I said, they're waiting their turn. Soon our turn, Joseph. Yeah, it's been a long journey, but we finally got here. Today is the day that he needs to be dedicated. Yeah, I tell you. wonder how many kids are here today. Man, the line is pretty long. Let's just wait our turn. And uh, they're waiting until they got up there and the priest raised him, and they dedicate, we like to dedicate to God this child. When they're dedicating to God the son he sent. And what blew me away is after the dedication, then they go to the registrar to register the child. And the registrar, who has done maybe hundreds or maybe thousands, I'm sure they had more than one registrar, he said, and what is the baby's name? And Mary said, Jesus. How do you spell that? J-E-S-U. Now, they didn't have J's back then. But can you imagine, how could the baby's name, Jesus, be dedicated at the temple of Jerusalem and not arouse suspicion among the priests and the rulers? How could that happen? Oh, friends, a lesson I learned there was powerful. Sometimes we could be so caught in the mundane rounds of life that the blessing of Jesus is right before us and we miss it. Sometimes we could become so repetitious in doing our job every day that we could be like the people that worked on the ark in Noah's day. They hammered and they sawed, they painted the pitch on, but when the flood came, they missed the boat because the repetition of life caused them to miss not only their mode of delivery, 
but the, but the deliverer himself. And Joseph and Mary were also overlooked because of the way they dressed. They didn't dress like wealthy people. And even, even the price of the dedication was simple. They couldn't afford a whole lot. But the Lord reveals something else to me about even the way that they had to pay for their baby to be dedicated. And I, I thought about this and I wrote it down this way. I want you to get it and not miss it. But the price that they paid for their baby to be dedicated. The price that they paid for their baby was nothing in comparison to the price that their baby would pay for them. Did you get it? They paid a simple price for their baby, but their baby paid an abundant price for them. That's good stuff. How much should we pay for him to be, for him to be recognized? And I could hear him saying, nothing compared to what I'm going to pay for you to be recognized. That's just, the rituals of the priests caused them to miss this baby. This baby that in his pre-existence was asked by Moses, can you show me your glory? Let's spend a little moment on that. And he said to Moses, oh, now I don't know if you can handle this. So what you need to do, Moses, is you need to hide in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and you just glance and see my back. That's the baby that stepped down his power. In the hand of the priests was the creator of heaven and earth. In the hand of the priest, in that slow-moving line, the majesty of heaven was in the arms of the one he created. The great I am, the one whom angels adored, the one to whom, as my good friend James Rafferty said, the one to whom everyone was obedient became one who had to learn obedience. The rose of Sharon was in the temple. The lily of the valley was there. The bright and morning star. The king of kings and lord of lords wrapped in swaddling cloths was being dedicated that day. The very first dedication. The inception of a mission that really did, ha that did not have a return trip guaranteed. He could have at any point in his mission been defeated. But he was the alpha and the omega. He was the beginning and the end. Sorry, he is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. Can you say amen? And I can tell you, Jesus probably didn't feel different than any of the children. That's why the priest looked at him as any other child. The Apostle Paul talks about how that could happen. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. The Apostle Paul talks about the danger of repetitious responsibility. We can be so repetitious that we can be blinded to the spiritual blessing right before our eyes. That's why when you do the job that God gives you on a day-by-day -day basis, pray for spiritual eyes. Pray for what? Pray for spiritual eyes because that day may be the very day that God reveals the glory that the natural eye may miss. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are what? Foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are what? Spiritually discerned. 
That's why even to the church of the last days, we are still being told by the Revelator John in Revelation 3 and verse 18, the prayer that we must have today as God's last day people, this should be our prayer. Can we say it together? Anoint your eyes with what? Eyes salve that you may see. That was the blind spot of the priests when Jesus came to be dedicated. Point number two, spiritual activity and spiritual discernment are not always the same. Spiritual activity and spiritual discernment are not always the same. Because when you study the story, it had been at least one year since the birth of Christ when the wise men saw the star. And the angel, that means the angels were not yet done. Why were they called wise men? The proper word there in the Greek was magi. These men were not magicians in the truest sense of the word. They were philosophers of the ancient East. These men existed where Balaam the prophet lived. Remember, Solomon was from the East. Balaam was from the East. These were wise men. They were educated. They were wealthy. They were influential. They were known as upright citizens, men of integrity. And what I like about when you look at their background, their lineage, their, their pedigree, you come to discover God would not have allowed corrupt men to communicate an uncorrupt message. He chose holy men to write the Bible. That's why when people today say, well, the Bible is written by men. No, read it itself. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God doesn't just choose common men with a cigarette in one hand and a drink in the other and say, write this down. Now, God cleans up the life and then communicates through the vessel that has been made pure by his own work. But when you continue studying the story, you come to the reality that the, that the wise men from the east in the region of Balaam, they had to follow the star. And in my own understanding, this could have been a star so bright that it could have been seen during the day. But let's just say it was seen only during the night. For 400 miles, these wise men had to follow the star. That's why in the book of Numbers, chapter 24 and verse 17, the Bible says, there shall come a star out of Jacob. And in the book, Desire of Ages, Ellen White says, these men did not have access to all the writings that the Jewish leaders had access. But when they saw the star, Terry, when they saw the star, they began to inquire. They went to the Jewish leaders. They went to the Hebrews and say, what does this star mean? And they had a chance to examine the prophets' writings, to examine the prophecies. And therefore, they knew that this star had a greater significance than just a regular star. There shall come a star out of Jacob. And when you read Matthew 2 and verse 2, why do they come to Jerusalem? The Bible says in Matthew 2, verse 2, the star led them. Did you grab that? The star led them. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know if you, you could understand that. But for the star to lead them, it wasn't a fixed star. It was a company of angels whose mission was not only to get the message to the shepherds, but to get the message to the wise men so that they can get the message to us. It was not just any star. It was an angel that appeared to the shepherds earlier. These learned men had seen many stars before. Amongst them were also astronomers, Dan. 
These men study the heavens. So when studying the heaven, they see a star that's moving, and it, and it first appeared at the same time that the angels appeared to the shepherds. So they know that this cannot be the same star. And that star led them to Jerusalem. And now we pick up the story that God sent the wise men to Jerusalem. Let's find out the purpose. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Why would God lead them to Jerusalem? Here it is. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to where? Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. You've got to grab that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but the wise men came to Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. They asked a question, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews, watch this, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to do what? To worship him. I just want to pause, just, just swallow before I go any further. We have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Notice what they didn't say. They didn't ask, who is he? They asked, where is he? They know who he was. They didn't ask, can we see his star? They said, we have seen his star. They were excited, Ressa, to see the star of Hollywood, not the stars of Hollywood. <laughs> In this temporal world, they get us excited about Hollywood, but I want to point you today to Hollywood. They came to see the star of Hollywood. But they went to the town where it should have been widely known. And the, and the answer was so ridiculous. They said, you know, uh, uh, the prophets in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders said, well, we, well, we heard that there should be a, a, maybe in Bethlehem of Ephrata. They were repeating the scrolls, but they had no personal knowledge that Jesus had arrived. You know what the saddest thing could be? That Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, could happen without the knowledge of his children being ready for that glorious event. I don't just want to talk about the coming of Jesus. I want to be ready for the coming of Jesus. Because this star that was continuing to move, this continuing to move star, went to give the wise men a message that started with the shepherds, and the Lord led them to Jerusalem for a very significant reason. He led them to Jerusalem, and this is a, a rebuke in and of itself, to remind the wise men that the people that I entrusted this message to for, for centuries had missed it. They missed it. As we were reading last night in The Desire of Ages, and I thought about this, and I said, Lord, please don't allow me to be in that category. Servant of the Lord, Ellen White says that there were heathens who did not have these writings who themselves, because of willing, humble hearts, understood the prophecies better than the Jewish leaders themselves. So watch out, Adventists, when you say you know it all. That, that spirit of arrogance that keeps us from sharing this message, God will bypass us and find some humble shepherds somewhere that's willing to communicate what we think we have the corner on. That's what it said to me. These men could not have come to have an encounter with Jesus before they came to Jerusalem. 
unless they had an encounter with Jesus before they got to Jerusalem. You see, some people come to have an encounter with Christ at church. But let me tell you something. If you don't have an encounter with Jesus before you come to church, you can't come to church to have an encounter with Jesus. They had an encounter with divinity before they got to Jerusalem so that when they got to Jerusalem, they were ready to worship. Let me say it again. You can't be ready to worship on Sabbath morning unless you've been worshiping the Lord all week long. It's not something that happens on one day. It should be the high day, which is my third point. Only those that have an encounter with God before they get to church are ready to worship him when they get to church. What happened when the wise men showed up? Look at Matthew 2 and verse 3. What happened? What happened? When this news was echoed throughout the streets of Jerusalem and it finally got to Herod and then to the Jewish leaders. The Bible says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. <laughs> Bob, that's deep. Herod was troubled because he was afraid of losing his throne. The Jewish leaders were troubled because they couldn't fathom God passing them by, revealing the truth to these uncircumcised heathens. They rejected the first report because of the unlearned poor shepherds. God tried again and said, okay, since you rejected the poor shepherds, I'm going to send some wealthy, wise men, educated people. And they rejected the report again. But Herod's heart was now moved to do something evil. Look at Matthew 2 and verse 8. Talking to the wise men about where they, where they knew that Jesus would be. What I want to insert here is the star that led them to Jerusalem disappeared behind the city until this verse. And then when they were given the commission to, to leave Jerusalem and find Jesus, Servant of the Lord said the star appeared again to guide them to where Jesus could be found. Herod said to them in Matthew 2 and verse 8, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. I didn't see this five, seven, eight years ago. God showed me this yesterday. And I tell you what he showed me. Herod represents those whose worship is a danger to Christ. I want you to grab that. Herod represents those that use worship to kill the influence of Jesus. Herod was influenced by Satan to terminate the life of Christ. But here's the dark side. He used worship to accomplish the eradication of the person of Christ. I want to ask you today, is your worship that which brings glory to God, or is it just for selfish purposes as it was for Herod? Find him that I may come and worship him, but when in fact his intention was to eradicate, to eliminate, to terminate the life of Christ, and he used the word worship to do that. Today, my brothers and sisters, in a world where worship is common, 
Jesus is not in the midst of everything called worship. That's what I learned in that story. When you find him, bring back the news to me that I may go and worship him. When you use worship and it becomes a danger to the representation, a danger to the life, a danger to the character of God, then worship is misguided and not anointed by heaven. We know that this was a prophecy that was fulfilled as Revelation 12 and verse 4 tells us what this was all about. Speaking of this plot to eliminate Jesus, the Bible speaks of Satan, how he was going to use Herod to try to eradicate the mission of heaven. Revelation 12 and verse 4 speaks his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child, what? As soon as it was born. So the dream that God gave to Joseph, the vision that God gave to the shepherds, the guidance that God gave to the wise men was for the sustenance of Christ. But Herod's heart was corrupt. The heart of the Jewish leaders were corrupt. God could not do much with them. And he says, when you find him, let me know where he is. I could see this wicked heart saying, they'll be back. Now, you don't know what's coming yet. They'll be back. So Herod dispatches these wise men, and they now leave Jerusalem on their mission to go ahead and find Jesus. Let's go back to Matthew 2 and verse 10. When they left Jerusalem, their joy returned. Here's what the Bible records in Matthew 2 and verse 10. They're leaving now. And the Bible says, when they saw the star, they did what? They rejoiced with exceeding joy. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're continuing their journey. And they are now filled with exceeding joy. You see, when the wise men then reached the house, remember, the shepherds went to the manger. The wise men went to the house. And when you read the record, you discover that it had been at least a year because the word child would not have been used in the Hebrew unless the baby had reached at least one year old. But even deeper than that, you also understand that when the commission was given, Herod said that the commission, when the wise men didn't come back, the commission was given to kill all those that were how old? Two years old and under. So the wise men and shepherd could not be in the same location at the same place because the baby was at least a year old when verse 11 in Matthew chapter 2 took place. Here it is. Look at verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and did what? Worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, sometimes we focus on what they gave, but my fourth point, and I have one more after this, my fourth point that the Lord revealed to me in this story, until you find Jesus, until you have an encounter with Jesus, you will never see the need to dedicate your gifts to him. Amen. Some of us are gifted, that's why I'm always troubled when people say, I don't want to serve this year. I have no choice but to let them out of their contract. But I could never hear myself saying, 
I want to hold off my gifts this year from Jesus. I want to keep my gifts dormant because I don't want to present my gifts to Jesus this year. Now, I understand people go through burnout and various challenges in their lives, and that's a qualifying factor. But if God has given you gifts, let me say this. When you have an encounter with Jesus, you'll be inspired to present your gifts to Christ. Now let's come to the winding down of the story. Whew. I hope you're enjoying it like I am. They were so filled with rejoicing, they were eager to go back and tell Herod that they found him. But that was not God's plan. Because God knew Herod's heart, and God knew the heart of the wise men. And the Bible says in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 2, and being warned of God, or some translations, being divinely warned, and being warned of God in a dream, in a what, friends? In a what, friends? In a dream. That they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country. How? Another way. Ooh, I want you to grab this. Just hold on a moment. I, I got to get a drink of ginger. Because i got to get ready for this next point. Mm. And I'm praying that this happens to you for the next year. Maybe for the next day. Maybe for the next week. God gave them a dream to change their direction. But until they embraced the dream that God gave them, they didn't change their direction. That's the difference between saying God gave me a dream and embracing the dream that God gave to you. you some people receive a dream from God, but they don't embrace it. And their lives, one week, one month, one year, two years, three years pass, and they're going in the same direction when in the back of their mind they're saying, God gave me this dream last year, two years ago, four years ago, and I'm saying to you today, if God is impressing upon your heart the inspiration of a dream for your life, the direction of your life will never change until you embrace the dream that God has given to you alone. Can you imagine I don't want to be repetitious in the application of this story, but can you imagine what would happen if Danny ignored the dream? How do you get a New Yorker in Thompsonville? I don't know if that's a dream or a nightmare, but I'm here. God gave them a dream to change their Direction. And I learned something very interesting, Curtis, that in the New Testament, you only find the word dream seven times. That's a hidden message from God. The perfect number, seven. It's only mentioned seven times in the entire New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, seven times. Let me share some of them with you. The first dream, God reveals to Joseph and Mary the pregnancy as a divine event. Then the third time, God instructs Joseph to go to Egypt to escape Herod's plot. I'm putting it in no specific order. Dream number four, God informs Joseph that Herod is dead and Jesus is safe. He informed him in a dream. Number five, God directs Joseph to go to Nazareth to avoid Herod's son. 
But the second dream is what I'm going to end the sermon on. God warns the wise men to change their direction. That's the second time the word dream is mentioned in the New Testament. When God warned the wise men to change their direction. The first time was to say, Joseph, what, what hap- what's happening in Mary is divine. Second time, God warns the wise men to change their direction. Here's, here's the point. When you embrace God's dream for your life, are you ready for it? When you embrace God's dream for your life, when you embrace the dream that God has for your life, as was the case with the wise men, Satan's plans are defeated when we embrace the dream that God has for our lives. Because if they had not embraced that dream, they would have gone back and told Herod where to find Jesus and he would have been killed. Satan's plans are defeated, my brethren, when God impresses you to embrace the dream only by embracing the dream, being obedient to the dream. Will the plans of the enemy for your life be defeated? Because I thought about this. I said, now let me, let me take this to the next level. Would Herod would have spared the wise men's lives? I don't know. But he was going to use them. The devil only wants to use us. But if we follow God's leading, not only will the plan of the enemy de- be defeated, but our lives will experience the dream God always has for us. Point number five. And I'm going to lead into this by this statement. I believe that one of the reasons there is no change in the direction of many of your lives is because you are not obedient to God's dream. I know that some of you sit down and think, what does God want me to do? And then sometimes God reveals it to you in the study of his word. And it's so magnificent that you think to yourself, there's no way that I could do that. And you abandon it. Which brings me to my fifth point and my last point. When yesterday's regrets are behind us and today's opportunities seem to fade, God gives us a dream. I want you to grab this. You see, the dream that God gave to the wise men challenged them to recalibrate their allegiance. And so I have to ask the question. They had two choices. Listen to Herod or listen to God. In every situation, we've got to ask the question, do we listen to our adversary or do we listen to our advocate? In every circumstance, God gives us a choice between the plan of the adversary or the dream of our advocate. The dream that God gave contained a personal blessing. Notice what it said. This is perfect. It says, they returned to their own country. The dream that God gave them was personal. God gives us personal dreams. Are you grabbing that? Their own country. Where they were going was not anybody else's country. It was their own. Everything that God gives to you, he designs to be your own. Meaning, I can't fulfill 
Will's dream, and Will can't fulfill my dream. I can't fulfill Donald's dream, and Donald can't fulfill my dream. It is our own. God shapes it. And when we focus, we realize that the dream has, that God has given to us belongs to us and to no one else. The wise men knew that the country that God was guiding them to was for them and no one else. And brethren, the country that God is guiding us to, the dream that God is guiding us to, is for us and no one else. So now the question is, what happens if we embrace the dream? Not only does it change our direction, but here's what the dream does. Our journey will be redirected. Our hopes will be revived. Our walk with Christ will be renewed. Our passion to serve Jesus will be restored. And our longing to hasten the coming of Jesus will be regenerated. Now I'm going to end with a story that's going to be powerful. Are you ready for it? Redirected, revived, renewed, restored, regenerated. Our hopes redirected. And then God comes in. God comes in when we think all our dreams have died and shows us a verse like this. And it came to pass, I looked, up that I looked up that in the Bible, I was blown away by how many times that is said in scriptures. And it came and it shall come to pass in the what days? Last days. Let's just begin to apply this to your life toward the ending way down in your journey. Says God that I will pour out my spirit on how much? All flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall do what? Prophesy. Prophesy. You young folk, hold on. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men, Amen. come on old men, Amen. shall dream dreams. Now watch, watch this. Just when you think you are beyond the years that matter, just when you think that the decades have brought you to a wall that is not going to move, God says, old man, I still have some dreams for you. Your old men shall dream dreams. Oh, I, I, I don't want to tell you my exact age, but I'm beyond 50. That's all I'm going to tell you. You don't need to have you don't need any other information. But I want to tell you, when I study God's word, it gives me new dreams. It gives me new hope. It revives me. And I begin to say to myself, there is no such thing as an impossible dream when God is the author of that dream. It doesn't matter about finances or how far away it's going to be. Well, I wish one day I could just take the book that my wife and I wrote together called Abandoned But Not Alone and walk you through some of the faith journeys in our lives, leaving Florida with hardly no money and ending up 35 years later where we are. Because God has dreams that he ignites in our lives. So when old men start dreaming dreams, the message in that passage is not just about pouring out a spirit on all flesh, but the latter part of that got me excited because I'm in that category. 
And God is saying, when people say to you, you too old, Leon, say, no, no, no. The Bible says, old men shall dream dreams. Old folks say, amen, we still have dreams. If they didn't happen, oh, I don't want to call, I don't want to say Ron is old, but Ron found him a wife because he still had a dream. Come on, amen, Ron. And Donna found her husband because she said, Donna's not old. I don't want to say that. You don't say that to women. They're not old. But in the latter part of their life, God had a dream for both of them. Let me tell you, my brethren, we may be stepping out of one year into another, but I'm telling you, when you step into this new year saying, wait a minute, Lord, I know you're not done with me yet, then God can take that which seems impossible and say, with God, all things are possible. Earlier this week, I, this song came to my mind. That's where the sermon came from. And, uh, you know me, as I get older, my voice is starting to come back from the injury that, was, that took place 12 years ago. I almost lost my voice permanently, and I'm still healing. But every now and then I say to my wife, as Dr. Thomas Cleveland told me as I was down at, the, at Vanderbilt University down there in Nashville, Tennessee, when they did all the examination and they said, you know, your voice is in God's hands now. There's nothing more we can do for you. So it's a matter of God's timing. And during this week of great activity, this, this very song came to my mind, The Impossible Dream. And I had to do some research about it because I've heard it before. It was a song that was debuted in 1965 from a Broadway play that was called The Man of La Mancha. Later it became a movie where these people that were unjustly imprisoned in the man of La Mancha, they, were, they never lost the dream to be freed and they would, were willing to do anything to be free, which began to develop the lyrics of the song. But, I've, I, but I found out something very interesting, that since its introduction, more than 65 popular artists have sung it. From 1965 to the present, popular artists are still singing the impossible dream. From religious artists to secular artists. Because there's something about a dream that keeps a person moving forward. Here are some of the names. You may have heard Frank Sinatra sing it, but he wasn't the first. The Temptations, Shirley Bassey, The Imperials, Sheer, Andy Williams. Old folk know who that is. The Smothers Brothers. The more old folk know who that is. Sammy Davis Jr. Let's kind of bring it up to today. Roberta Flack, Luther Vandross, Aretha Franklin, Susan Boyle, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And the most recent, very well-known name that recorded this was Josh Groban in 2020. What is it about a dream that keeps coming back as the years roll? You see, dreams remind us that it's not too late, that tomorrow is still on the way. Come on, somebody ought to say amen. Dreams tap us on the shoulder and says, if there is time, there is hope. Dreams push us past the mundane and reignite our passions. Dream brings our finish line into focus. And dream separates us from the crowd to realize that God created us for more. Because 176 times in the Bible, 
I've seen this phrase, it came to pass, it came to pass, it came to pass, it came to pass. 176 times it came to pass. You know why? I believe one of the applications, because when God gives you a dream, it's going to come to pass. So today, let me end with this phrase, and I want you to grab it, because we're about to step into a new year with endless possibilities. If you're watching, God's got a plan for your life. Endless possibilities. We don't serve a God who says that's not possible. With God, all things are possible. But make sure it's in harmony with God's will. So I challenge you, don't be pushed around by your fears. Let God place his dreams in your heart. Don't be pushed around or held captive by the fears of your mind. Pray for God to place his dreams within your heart. And when he does that, nothing will be impossible. Here's my appeal to you today. If you want God to keep your dreams alive that he has placed in your life today, I'm going to step out and take a risk and sing the song The Impossible Dream. While I sing this song, if God is impressing you that there is still more in your journey, that there's still something that he has that can transform your mundane walk and reignite the dreams that God has always had for you. As I sing this song, if you're saying, God, give me a dream and may that dream fulfill your will for my life. As I sing this song, and if God is speaking to you as I sing this song, Michael, go ahead and begin that. As I sing this song, I pray that the Lord will impress you to embrace that dream, hold on to that dream, know that that dream is from God. dream the impossible dream to fight the unbeatable foes to bear with unbearable sorrow and to run with a great brave dear not go to right the unrightable wrongs and to love pure and chaste from afar to try when your arms are too weary and to reach his unreachable star. This is my quest to follow that star. No matter how hopeless and no matter how far to be willing to fight Without question or pause 
To be willing to march against hell for God's heavenly cause. And I know if I'll only be true to his glorious quest, that my heart will lie peaceful and calm when I'm laid to my rest. And the world will be better for this That one man torn and covered with scars Still strove with his last ounce of courage To reach the unreal the unreachable, the unreachable star. Yes, to fight when your arms are too weary and die. The impossible dream And I'll always dream God's impossible Father in heaven, some of us have looked at the Christian life as something impossible to live, impossible to accomplish. We have faced obstacles in our lives, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our homes, in our ministry, in our careers. We have looked at the road before us as something that seems difficult to surmount. And it may be because we have attempted to accomplish these things in our own strength. But Lord, now we stand on the portal of a new year and your grace has carried us thus far. And what seemed impossible to Joseph was a divine appointment. What seemed impossible to the wise men was a divine directive. And we see today, Lord, that we are where we are because you've always dreamed big for us. You've always known that we could be more than we have anticipated, that we can be more than our plans have been etched on paper to become. And I pray today, Lord, that we could say, Father, Give me the dream that you gave to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar and to Joseph and to 
those who have stepped faithfully in the path of divine guidance. Impossible, not with God. And so, Lord, today, reawaken within us those things that we have allowed dust to collect and cover. We have prayed to be stronger Christians, and somehow we have looked at our lives and said it can't be done. But, Lord, today, you've reminded us that with God all things are possible. So bless us, Lord, as we go into this season where many are giving and many are purchasing and buying and selling and remind us that the most impossible thing that became a reality for us is that a son stepped out of eternity that one day we may step into eternity. Take us from the place that we stand to the unknown and unforeseen future that you have for us and make it possible, not because you've given us a dream, but because we embrace it and we trust you to bring it to pass. This we ask for and this we pray for in the worthy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.